Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Activist Listening. Today I'm discussing the fight for fair grades, which occurred during the pandemic last um, last spring semester, with Arthur Martins, who was one of the leaders of No Fail Med. On March 12th, 2020, Middlebury students were sent home from campus to complete the rest of their semesters while the coronavirus ravaged the country. Once students were sent home, it became brutally apparent that students were facing drastically different home learning environments. Where some students had reliable Wi-Fi and a quiet room to study in, others had glitchy internet connections or had to study in the same room as their siblings or had to take care of other people and other priorities instead of being able to focus entirely on their work or even faced housing insecurity and didn't know if they had a place to study at all. Suddenly, grading became a question of equality, empathy, and dignity. Would Middlebury recognize that we are all drastically different students beyond this campus because of externalities outside of our control? Middlebury students saw that other peer institutions, such as Harvard and Yale, had transitioned that semester's grading to a dual A system meaning that the worst grade a student could get for the semester was an A minus. They understood that quote unquote raising that semester's grades was not rewarding students for so-called laziness, but rather was trying their best to even out an incredibly inequitable situation. In conjunction with this, a number of students in Middlebury, including Arthur, my guest today, launched Fair Grades Med, um, also known as No Fail Med, asking for a universal credit, no credit system which means that no student would receive a letter grade for the semester. They would just get a credit for their class that they passed or no credit for a class that they didn't. Fair Grades Mid also tried to push for the dual A system that was in place at Harvard and Yale, but said that their primary emphasis was on grading equity. That is ensuring that everybody was held to the same standard, whether that was with a universal dual A or universal credit, no credit. Middlebury's faculty, however, did not listen to these students and decided instead to allow students to opt in to a credit, no credit grade for their class. Meaning that some students last spring received letter grades and some students received passes on their transcript. Although Arthur's movement was ultimately unsuccessful, I still very much wanted to talk to him to better understand how this movement came about, what it was like talking with the administration and the faculty about it, and what lessons he's learned from this to use in his future activism. So please welcome Arthur Martins. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining, Arthur. Thank you um, for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to start talking with you about Fair Grades Med. And I start off every podcast with just like a couple of get to know you questions about you and about activism in general. So the question that I ask everybody, which is my like actual favorite question to ask, is what is your most controversial non-political opinion? Mm. Well, um, well, as far as Middlebury is concerned, I'd say that I fully believe that Proctor Dining Hall is overrated. Now, listen to me, you, you need to, it's controversial, but it, it, it is backed up by, by pure science. There is, <laughs> there's just not enough exhaustion in that dining hall. You go in, you have good food, you have good friends, but you leave out smelling like food. And then you have mm. to do laundry. And maybe that's a pipeline that the college was going through where you went to Prague, your clothes started smelling and then you had to buy more and more laundry. But now that the laundry is free, it's just pointless anymore. So I think that the dining hall is not, Prague dining hall is not as great as it could be. 
Oh, a conspiracy. I love it. A conspiracy, yeah. A deep dive. <laughs> I respect that. I used to be a prop girl through and through, but now I live in Atwater. And since this semester, there's dinner in Atwater too. I have to say, um, it, it is better than Brock. I'm sorry, Brock. Right. I know. Spiritually, though, I mean, we're still there spiritually. Spiritually. <laughs> um, all right. Well, my second question for you is, um, when did you first become aware of protests, either them as an action or just the idea that like people calling for change could create change? I think there were two different moments in my life. One sort of more as as a foundation and one when it really, the pieces came together and I realized what was going on. When I was in, it might've been sixth or seventh grade, we organized a play and it was, uh, it was essentially about turkeys going on strike, not to be slaughtered for Thanksgiving. And there was a whole procession, a whole march of turkeys, um, which we were protesting against that. And, you know, at the time that just flew over my head. But in 2013, when the Brazilian government decided to hike um, bus fares in the city of Sao Paulo, that unleashed a chain of anti-corruption protests across the country mm -hmm. that at the time it was being described as the giant has woken up in reference to Brazil being, in reference to Brazil being, the giant of, of Latin America. And it was at that, that moment, I'm from Brasilia, which is Brazil's capital. So we were very much the, the focus of these protests. It was at that moment that I saw people coming together um, peacefully, violently, angrily, you know, in all different sorts of, of adverbs, um, coming together to purport an agenda that they wanna change. And, and that was my first experience uh, attending one of these protests back in 2013. Whoa. What ended up happening with the um, bus fares? So they kept the bus fares. What led that was, what followed that was an unanticipated consequence of those protests was the rise of a fascist state um, oh, in our yeah. country. Um, it was, it was a really, it was a pivotal moment. And I think that goes to say that activist movements don't always do what you want them to do, but they have repercussions that are unanticipated and unforeseen. And it just, all this anti-corruption rhetoric at the time there was a workers party um, in power. It just turned to be very anti-leftist. It turned into anti-leftist rhetoric and there was just a conflation between anti-corruption and anti-leftist, which strengthened the right wing, which in turn started using this corruption procedures as sort of as a Trojan horse for their own right-wing agenda. Mm -hmm. And it's led to where we are right now with Jair Bolsonaro being our president. Yeah, why is it the, the people who always run on anti-corruption end up being the worst? Like, I, feel like I know, right? Sorry, this is such a <laughs> yeah. tangent. I'm just like- No, <laughs> it's, it's so true. It's, yeah. <laughs> Oof, duh. Well, I guess with that, um, because you were at, you were at these protests, um, when was the first time that you considered yourself to be some sort of activist? Um, it was the summer of 2017 for me when I went back to Brasilia after spending two years in high school in Germany. And I decided that it was time for me that I want to give back to my home community. That was something that was a big focus in the high school that I went to. And I, I was wondering, how can I, how can I do this, right? How can I be useful? How can I mobilize my identity into something that can be powerful for others as well. And I started getting involved 
in this queer collectives, queer activist collectives that we had oh, um, in town. And at the time, the, the question of the century, the question of, of that summer was employers, discriminations of LGBTQ, but especially trans workers. There had been an incident where a trans worker, a trans woman had been fired from her, her work at the, at the bus station, at the main bus station in Brasilia. Um, for being for coming out as trans, and so we we you know we did a lot of lobbying in the local assembly. We actually stormed the local assembly and hailed an LGBTQ flag over the Whoa. conservative wing. It was a whole a whole show of things. But that's when I'd say that I saw looking myself as an act, as an activist. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's really like on the ground. That's awesome. All right, well, since you have that really cool underpinning of activism to you, there is no surprise to me, I guess, that you were so involved in the Fair Grades Med um, push in Middlebury last spring. Um, as I explained in the intro, it was ultimately, you know, the result was not what you or I honestly wanted. Um, but I did want to ask if, um, even though it wasn't successful in the way that was um, initially intended, were there any successes that you found through it or lessons that you learned that were like, oh, that was that was a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that our achievement was creating an environment where we could lose because um, no one was talking about grading before we did. No one was no one was thinking about what the impact to, of COVID, what the impact of going remote was gonna change in people's lives and was gonna, in, in what concerned graining, there was very few public, very few, there was very little public discourse on campus at the time around grading. And that's when Luca Persistent, Luca Bowen Persistent and I, we connected with, with some people at Yale and Harvard um, who were doing universal pass fails. And, and we said, you know, this is an important conversation to bring to Middlebury. And so we started the, 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 the movement itself as a conversation. We framed it as here is some information, here is what we've seen, here's what we're talking about um, to different people, and here's how we would like you to take action, right? And so I think our, our movement was very successful in putting grading at the center of campus conversations there in March and April. Um, that, that was when our, our movement ran. Um, and, you know, even, even though we did ultimately fall short of our ultimate premise of adopting either a universal credit, no credit, or a universal A, a minus, a dual A policy, we still had an impact in the economic, in not economic, pardon, we still had an impact on the educational affairs committee on, in the college that they have kept the optional credit, no credit policy, retiring the former past fail policy. And so I see that also as a heritage, as a legacy from our movement. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I was not expecting that to be in place this semester or last semester at all. Like I thought, you know, when we came back for the fall, all of the grading stuff for the spring would be over. And it was pretty impressive that they were like, no, the semester is still weird. Like we might be on campus, but things are not normal. Um, and the fact that you guys pushed so hard for that, I think is not lost on anybody. So with that, you said that you were talking to um, other, um, other people at other schools. And it did really surprise me, honestly, that you know Harvard and Yale and other really big institutions went for universal credit, no credit, and for the AA minus, and that Middlebury didn't. 
So I guess with your insider input, do you know why, or like, do you have any ideas as to why Middlebury's faculty didn't follow their peers at other institutions? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, especially because one of the things we learned from the from the movement is how much shadow work, so to speak, happens when it comes to this kind of policy decisions at Middlebury. It was very hard for us from the onset to understand with whom lied the decision to make mm. these changes we were asking for, right? And ultimately it came to be that it was a faculty council that would vote on, vote upon a change, recommend it to the administration, would ratify it and, and go back to us. In the beginning, we had thought that it came from the, from the administration itself. And so a lot of our efforts had concentrated in connecting with administrators, connecting with fellow students, hoping that the SGA could then endorse it as it did in previous, in, in other institutions to back up to the administration so that they would make a decision. And so um, ultimately it was a politics of compromise. Um, in conversation with a couple of the faculty members that were really, that were really spearheading our cause to the faculty council, um, it became known to us that in the few days leading up to the faculty council, there were a couple of meetings and what a group of professors did um, was they said, this is great, but it's also, we don't want to upset all the other students that are, that are you know, the, who am I so kindly referred to as opt-iners um, who are advocating for maintaining the system, who are, who are advocating for sustaining the meritocracy, who are advocating for sustaining grades as, and this is from a, one of the op-eds that was published as oh, the, last guardian, <laughs> the last guardian of, of meritocracy or of, of upholding our society's values, you know, something like that and absolutely ludicrous. But they came up with a compromise solution saying, what if, we did an optional credit, no credit with no penalty for students. And we kept the grade system, um, giving, giving everyone the best of both worlds. Now that in theory, you think, yeah, great, sounds reasonable. And that is the appeal of politics of compromise, especially when you're distant from a cause is saying, seems fair enough, right? I mean, everyone seems to be getting what they want, but in reality that defeated the purpose that we were asking for the change. That was that the difference between an optional grading system and a graded grading system would lead people to have a more incentive to pursue graded, graded letters rather than, than favoring their own well-being and their own circumstances. And then comes in the question of inequality, of inequity on campus where some people felt they had more confidence choosing letter grades and, and getting to better results than people who might have felt pressured into taking optional grades, um, optional grade, alternative grading um, in order to, to be able to fulfill their duties at home, for instance. But it was this compromise solution that was ultimately what brought us down. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, I thought I just, I found that so frustrating, that whole debate. It just, I felt like it was so blatantly obvious, like the levels of difference and disparity between the student community. And just, I didn't understand how people couldn't get, like we're not all in Davis Library anymore. Like people's living circumstances are so different. And even if you, like, even if you have a very nice home with Wi-Fi, everything to go back to, like people were severely depressed and terrified and had parents who were like essential workers or working in hospitals. And just the idea that oh no, everything's fine. Like you can just work for your grades and just work a little harder. Like 
oh my goodness, I just didn't understand how people weren't getting it. Yeah, absolutely. And we would think that those things would be common sense and that people would really be able to see eye to eye, but it was one of a moment that was really disheartening here in my Middlebury experience, just seeing how much people will prioritize their own individual benefit, however detrimental it may be to others' collective welfare. And that told me a lot about the kind of community we live in. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I found it to be very 50-50 because there were people like you and so many people that were very pro having like, um, everybody has to do like pass fail or AA minus. Um, and that was like, oh, that's so great. Like people are uplifting their community and are putting their own, you know, grades, whatever aside. And then, yeah, there was a small section of the campus, which didn't even feel that big. I guess they were just like more powerful to the faculty for some yeah. reason who just couldn't get it in their heads that grading did not matter during a pandemic. Like, it just doesn't exactly. matter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When you're back in the status quo, you don't even have to have a movement, right? You just have to, yeah. to ride the wave. <laughs> just like, I don't know if you noticed, but there's like a pandemic outside. Like, I'm not going to try and get an A this semester. I just don't care. True. <laughs> I felt pretty lucky though, because I was studying abroad um, and, you know, mid doesn't have pass fail abroad which is really hard because most people that you're abroad with do. So everyone else is like going out and not writing their papers and all the mid kids are like, oh, yeah, we still get grades. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it was past fail. And I was like, whoa, because <laughs> I haven't done anything. <laughs> Where were you abroad? Um, I was actually back home in London, which okay. was kind of sneaky of me. I wasn't supposed to do that, but I was a little homesick. So I was that's just great. I'm glad that you got to do it. Yeah, me too. And I'm very glad it was past fail, even though not so glad about the pandemic. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. But okay. <laughs> um, anyway, back to the question. Um, I guess, would you say that this, the op-ed from the students was your biggest roadblock ultimately? Or would you say that it was something else, like a roadblock to your success? I think we ran into a couple roadblocks um, and the first one being well first of all going in blind and not understanding how policies policy decisions worked transparently on campus that definitely um, set us back strategy wise because we were really student driven um, and also faculty driven in the beginning um, and we spent a lot of the time afterwards shifting gears towards the administration. And we did that by dealing with one of the biggest gatekeepers on campus at that time, which were the SGA. Uh, and the SGA was definitely what I see as one of our biggest roadblocks for, for widespread success, because by the time we had brought the, the petition to the SGA, before opt-in had even articulated a response of their own, we were already asking the Senate to endorse fair grades and to start and send out surveys um, asking, an official survey asking students to, to take a stand um, or in the very least take a step as, as other student organizations, as student associations had done in, in our peer institutions, the, you know, in Yale and in Harvard, 
they it, it really came from the student governments this this pressure to change and they really adopted and got behind and say yeah no we completely endorse this movement let's go to the administration together and help fight it whereas at middlebury it was an absolute nightmare um they stalled the process immensely they made us do we had a deadline to meet with the administration we had a deadline for the next faculty council meeting because they only happen once a month or there's a specific time frame in which they happen and we came to them two three weeks in advance of that meeting saying we want you to endorse this here we'll present our case we'll give you the statistics by that point we already had 1600 signatures um, backing us which is more quorum than the previous president had had elect her uh, so we were feeling confident and yet the Senate stalled us. They said, no, we need to hear also from opt-in. We said, okay, fair enough. Let's, uh, let's hear from opt-in. And ultimately they just said, oh, it's not up for the SGA to take a stand. It's not up for the SGA to, to issue a, an endorsement of anything. What we're going to do is that we're going to design an impartial survey, um, and we're gonna send it to the students to send it as data to support the administration's decision. And so we wow. spent a lot of time in that cycle thinking that they would be able to deliver us an endorsement that we would be able to take to the administration and say the student body wants this, do something about it. And I see that, um, of course, it, looking back, it's easy to get into a world of what ifs, right? But um, I, I, I see that if we had had a more engaged student government association that was more welcoming to our student activism, we could have had a different impact on how the, the deliberations went with the faculty, county, faculty council. Wow, that's so frustrating. I didn't know any of that. Um, I guess that ties in pretty well to my next question of looking back, do you, do you think there's any way that you could have spoken to the SGA to get them on board? Or do you think this was kind of always the way that it was gonna turn out? I think it was a question of the people that were there at that time and their willingness to, to take bold risks and take positions. Um, it's since gotten a lot better. I, I have to be fair and say that the SGA has in the past few, the past year, um, um, gotten a lot more welcoming of students. And I, and I think there's been also a growth of student activism on campus that has required a more collaborative approach from, from these collectives with the Student Government Association. I would have found new ways of reaching out to people. We were really trying to, to reach out individually to people and what we couldn't break through was through these very big ideas that some people had about meritocracy and about things that come deep from deeply rooted privilege and just from this ideal educational ideology right i mean i would have tried to look differently how we could reach out to those people when the empathy argument was not working anymore and we had several arguments we had arguments that said this, so is good for, this, this is better for you too you know individually but um, I also wish we had focused more time um, lobbying faculty from the onset. Mm. That's like, that is so depressing to be like, oh, the empathy argument wasn't working. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, just, I know. I really <laughs> get it. There was actually, there was an episode of the Daily, like the New York Times podcast about a woman at, I want to say Haverford. I'm not totally sure if that's right. But it's essentially the same situation of her classmates um, and her classes, you know, were going back to their vacation homes. And she was 
going back to her family home in Florida where her parents were trying to run a food truck, which was going under because of the pandemic. And like, she's dealing with all of these like, like life or death, like huge family situations um, and trying to lobby Haver I wanna say Haverford, I think it's Haverford, um, to like change their grades to be more equitable. And I think, I mean, this is the exact same thing that's happening here. And to hear that like, oh, the empathy argument of just like listening to your peers and understanding that people don't have the same lives as you wasn't working. It's just like, oh, it's so disheartening. Yeah. I guess with that, like, what do we do about that? Like, how do we, how do we work on the Middlebury student body to make them better understand and be more aware of the like inequities among us? Well, I think, I think about that question a lot um, in my scholarship, in my poetry and, and in my activism. Because you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink the water. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how I see this approaching inequalities in a very, in a very privileged and wealthy school like ours is you have a, a series of complicated factors, right? At first, people like to think of themselves as liberal. People like to think of, them of themselves as good people, as empathetic. Um, and and that blinds them from privilege that you, you just think of yourself as removed from the material realities that might have brought you here to campus. But you still think of yourself as a good person, as someone liberal who supports um, social welfare, who would say I would never, you know, do anything ill against a poor person. Um, people come from that mind space. And then you live in a, in a, in a structure here at college where it's a homogenifier, we'll say, you know, there are certain mm. aspects of our experiences together that are really masked. And one of them is class. Class, especially in the US, um, is very intertangled with race, but it's also very difficult to discern on the daily. Um, you know, you come here to campus, I'm, I'm a low income student, but I have a, you know, I, I worked and I got a Tommy Hilfiger jacket. If I go to the dining hall with a Tommy jacket, people will look at me and say, okay, he's got money, you know, and no further questions will be asked about it. I will be able to integrate. I'll be able to traverse that space in a particular way. So people don't necessarily have to confront with the reality of the depths of the differences that we have mm. here with each other. And that's something that came out in fair grades where people were returning home to the very essential material reality that they came from, right? And, and where someone lives can tell so much about them. Um, and that was hidden. Now, why do I think that the empathy, the empathy argument didn't work is because there is this other thing called um, the, the paradox of exposure. And that is when you expose someone to a social cause, to an inequality, to a fact um, related to a social justice cause, in the more information you give, it actually makes them less likely to take action against it. Yeah. Um, so in studies, we were reading for this for class the other day. They were they were talking about the the higher rate of mass incarceration of of Black Americans in prisons, and then asking people to sign a petition um, for more bias training or for prison reform for whatever it was to to counter that. And people who were shown more information and more data responded less to the survey. So I think that in that same sense, when you're when you're 
you know, when you're shaking, <laughs> shaking the bottle and you're exposing this inequity about our college or exposing the structural differences between people, it's a hard thing to confront. People don't want to acknowledge that the reason why they might be getting good grades is because they come from an environment where their parents have good jobs, where they were raised by, you know, they had tutoring support. People don't want to, to acknowledge the structural realities that materialize their success. They just want to think, I'm a good person. This is what I do. It's me personally that, that I am smart and that I'll get good grades. And that might as well be true, but it misses the point. Um, and so that's where we found a difficulty with the empathy argument. And that's what people need to be bold if to be really critical thinkers to, to have here on campus. You need to look to first check yourself, be aware of where you come from and situate yourself saying, you know, I'm not here as a byproduct, byproduct of nothing. I have a history. I have a background. I have people who helped me come here, who shaped me who I am. And that goes for everyone. And once you do that, you see maybe my situation was privileged by these circumstances and was not privileged by these other circumstances. And only when you recognize yourself and you see yourself in this vulnerable, vulnerable position, can you start to empathize with others. And that is for me the only way of moving forward with any kind of social justice activism is the key to how can you let, let lead, lead people to get to that vulnerable state where they'll look at themselves and then look at the other fully. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, that was a great answer, thank you. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot too, because it's just like, I, you know, I was doing a lot of research for this and just getting so frustrated by these answers for people who didn't want fair grades. Um, and I also felt like there was this idea, which um, it feels quite honestly, feels very American to me that like people are either like good people who are hardworking or not. And there was such an idea of like, oh, well, I've been working really hard all semester just because we're getting sent home doesn't mean that like my grades should be compromised. Um, or like people who weren't working hard on campus, now all of a sudden like they're gonna get an A, like that's unfair. And it was like, first off, this is March. Like there was a lot of the semester left. Who knows how that was gonna pan out. And second off, like what about people who were working really hard on campus who then got sent home to like, places where they weren't able to work hard anymore. Like that doesn't seem fair. But it felt like there was that, like such an extreme binary of like, well, I'm a good person. So I deserve to be like upheld above my peers or like my peers aren't good people. Therefore, I was like, there has to be a way of breaking out of that mindset. Like it just doesn't feel like, like helpful to anybody or like there's any room for growth, especially in a liberal arts school where we're like told to think differently about the world and about measures of success. Oh, sorry, that's just my rant. No, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's it's so frustrating <laughs> and and yeah, it it was definitely a moment of getting to know myself and getting to know the community we're in as well. I was very shocked yeah. with some of the comments that came out of of these op-eds and in conversations with the opt-iners. Um, in our presentations at the SGA, I mean, it was just a regurgitation of all these meritocratic, individualistic arguments and people were eating it up. I think, you know, as an international student, I'm from Brazil, I wonder if it's something that is inherently imbued in American culture, this ideal of individualism, of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and not being not being aware of other people's circumstances that might have helped you get where you are. 
Yeah, I just, I think, and this might be very cynical of me, so maybe this isn't fair, but I wonder like how many people were saying that in the SGA who were like currently enrolled in like a sociology class and they're like done Mm. readings where they're like, oh, American meritocracy is a myth. And then we're telling you like, oh, but we can't have fair grades. Like, I'm just, I'm curious. Yeah, true. I mean, I think that's something that that will be lost in the quote unquote from the movement is that we'll never be able to understand the the cut downs, you know, we was there a class disparity between people who who supported fair grades to people who supported um, to supported opt in were mm-hmm. there was there a geographical disparity, you know, those are analysis that that could be really insightful to our college and yet we just don't have a way to to reach them. Oh yeah, that could have been so interesting. Hmm. Well, yeah, okay, so speaking about, um, I guess, future plans, like how do we help Middlebury? How do we get out of this? Um, You said at the beginning, which I thought was really cool, that, you know, Middlebury this year has kept its current model of opt-in, credit, no credit for one class. Do you think um, post-pandemic that this should still be available or what, what do you think the future should be for grading if um, if there should be any changes at all. Yeah, so it's my understanding now that the policy that the college has returned to is that you're allowed two alternative grading, um, two non-grade grades uh, across your, your academic journey here. And that would be credit, no credit, or pass, defail when they still had it. So it's my understanding that they've retired, retired pass, defail, and implemented opt-in um, credit, no credit, in in, a, in as a replacement in its place, right? Whereas in our in the spring that we're talking about, you could have you could take as many credit, no credit courses as you wanted, and they would not have counted towards these two alternative grades that you that you could still have in your semester. I think that. You know, it's a uh, realistically speaking, I don't think in, on an institutional level, it's going to go anywhere farther than that. I think that the politics of compromise is a strong one. People now are coming back to a place where they see grades as being very valuable as they always have. And with the pandemic being both normalized and now dwindling to a certain extent, people will just return to the mentality of, you know, grades good, whatever else. I don't care, um, but it's good that the college is maintaining the the opt-in credit, no credit, because it's less harsh than a pass fail, because you don't actually fail a class. You just it just goes on your transcript as if you have never taken it. Um, I appreciate that sort of of understanding that has been brought on um, to the students who might choose to use this this modality. And, but, you know, grading is more, is a question greater than our movement could ever be. Grading, as we have had in our conversation just now, it's so philosophical. It talks about uh, a series of material realities that, that have informed it. You know, you can't look at grading without looking at capitalism, without looking at racial capitalism, without looking at different forms of of constraining people and creating narratives that justify why some people should be above other people. Mm-hmm. Um, grades are inherently connected to these realities of our world. They're not just letters on a page, you know, and whoever thinks that they are a mere reflection of their own personal work without any context or background is being a little bit naive, in my opinion. I think that there are a lot of 
people on this campus, a lot of professors, a lot of students who are querying grades, so to speak, who are looking at different forms of assignments, who are looking at how can I grade my students differently, asking, is it even fair to grade my students at this point? I've had professors this semester coming in and saying, we are in the middle of a pandemic. I will give everyone an A, but I want you to put in the work because it's important to me what you can get out of the course being what you get out of the course. Um, and, and so in that sense, some other professors focus more on feedback and revision rather than grades. So you have a, a grade that is based not on an absolute quality of your work, but on the progress you've made with it. Mm. Um, and so I think now looking at grading, it's really asking ourselves, what do we need grades for? Who are grades serving? Who's being left out in this grades debate? And how can we imagine uh, education beyond meritocracy, beyond grades, an education that is fulfilling in itself and you don't have to be offering people absurd incentives or you know, the threat of failure in order for them to, to move forward? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's so, like we've seen, I don't know if you watched the whole like college admission scandal documentary or all that stuff, yeah. but you know, people just forging their transcripts because they can afford to, or like hiring people to take the SATs for them. And it's like, that's a whole other level. Like, obviously that's, that's cheating, but it's also saying like, if you have the resources, you can fudge these things. Like you don't even have to honestly show up. So then like, then what do grades mean? Do they mean that you can cheat the system? Like, what is that? And um, all very interesting stuff. All right, so I have a little fun thing um, to end the podcast. Okay. Um, yeah. So I play a game at the end of every episode where I read three quotes from people who are against your movement. And you have to <laughs> guess whether they're a real quote or whether I made it up. Okay, so, oh God, this is gonna right. be... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the first one is mandatory credit, no credit disadvantages a student relative to students who've had stellar first years, already have high GPAs and do not need every semester thereafter to improve. This is an inequity introduced by the proposed change. Oh God, you know, these quotes are so bad that I really hope all of them are fake. Uh, but I think this one is a real one. Yep. That's real. That's from that op-ed, the student <laughs> op-ed about, they're like, oh yeah, like credit no credit is actually, yeah, um, creating inequities in the student body. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's literally <laughs> the, not. <laughs> it's not creating inequities. Your effort to stop us from being oppressed is oppressing us. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, my second one is, how am I supposed to motivate myself to reorganize my pantry without the reward of academic validation? I think that's a fake. Yeah, that's fake. It's from the Noodle article that we ran that was like, please give me grades on how well I unloaded the dishwasher. Um, <laughs> yeah, written by the wonderful Hannah Gokaslin. Um, it was very funny. She just like wrote it in one sitting because she was so angry about this student op-ed and just like uploaded it to the website. Yeah. <laughs> like, <"Screw this." laughs> All right, the last one is, in a time where many are desperately seeking engagement, preserving the one incentive that brings out the best in students seems essential. Yeah, that's a true one. 
yeah that's yeah that's true that's from the iPad <laughs> hey it's our only incentive I only want to learn if somebody's telling me a letter grade it's sad it's it's frankly sad um, to see people who diminish their scholarship and their passion for studying so much that they would tether it only to grades um, it really makes me sad <laughs> me too and it's also just like I don't think I think even when you're when you're living through something traumatic or something stressful, I think you don't even realize how bad it is at the time. But like we were literally like it was literally life or death for people. Like I was sick, like I had COVID when all of this went down. And I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to finish my coursework. And right. to be stressed out about grades is just insane. Like it's insanity. <laughs> I was like, why am I worried about my grades right now? Like, I'm sick with right. that nobody knows, like, how many people it kills. Like, that's so scary. Yeah, priorities. But... All right, just to close off, um, I'm just going to ask if there's anything that you think that I missed, um, anything else that you want to bring up that, um, that I didn't get a chance to ask or that you would like to answer. Um, yeah, so I was just reading through um, over your, your introduction, and I just wanted to make sure that um, I wasn't misunderstanding it. So fair grades came first as a, a advocating for universal pass fail. Mm -hmm. um, and then we incorporated dual A and rebranded ourselves into fair grades men. Um, Got it. Okay. Okay. So it I wasn't originally about, yeah, it wasn't originally about dual A. Got you. Thank you for clarifying that. And the reason that. why we could not have dual A implemented was a issue of accreditation. So the North northeast higher institute i can't i can't get the the names the name exactly of the institution for you but it's a, the accrediting organization that accreditates our courses they can't accept courses that do not have fail options so a dual a would have to include a dual a fail um, and that's <laughs> when we started to think we were complicating things a little too much policy-wise so um, but yeah we started off as universal pass fail then went to universal credit no credit with a dual a backup got it okay okay thank you that's wild to me that you have to have a fail option but that's interesting um, <laughs> how else yeah, can you tell you that some people succeeded if no one else failed if no one failed yeah how did you succeed <laughs> that's great Oh boy. Well, okay, thank you so much. Wow, yeah, I learned so much. This is really fascinating. Always lovely speaking with you, Arthur. So thank you for your thank time. You. I'd like to thank Arthur again so much for speaking with me today. As always, I learned so much more about the nuances of protest and how to engage in a movement um, and how honestly to take failure and learn from it and to create more growth in the future and to see the positives in the end of any movement. So I really want to thank him so much for putting in so much effort last semester on behalf of all of his peers. I know we talked a bit about an empathy gap here, but I very much believe that Arthur and all the people that he worked with are filling that gap. So thank you and thank you for listening.